Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Monday, October 18th, and it's my pleasure to present this podcast together with my friend and colleague, Khaled El-Gindi, who is a senior fellow and director of the program on Palestine and Palestinian Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute. Thanks, Laura. It's great to uh, see you and good to be with you. Um, today we have with us actually in the flesh uh, are two of Israel's foremost experts on Israeli policies that uphold and expand occupation, uh, as well as the dispossession of Palestinians, both in Jerusalem and in the West Bank, Danny Seidemann uh, and Yehuda Shal. Um, check the, uh, the notes that will accompany this podcast for their full bios, but in brief, uh, Danny Seidemann is a practicing attorney in Jerusalem who specializes in legal and public issues in East Jerusalem. He is the founder and director of Terrestrial Jerusalem, the Israeli nonprofit that works to identify and track developments in Jerusalem that could impact the political process or permanent status options, uh, destabilize the city, spark violence, or that create humanitarian crises. You can follow his work at t-j.org.il, and you can follow him on Twitter at Daniel Seidemann. Yehuda Shaw was born and raised in Jerusalem in an uh, ultra-Orthodox family and graduated from a yeshiva high school in an Israeli settlement in the West Bank. He served in the IDF as a commander and deputy company sergeant in the 50th Battalion of the Nahal Brigade from 2001 to 2004 in the West Bank towns of Bethlehem and Hebron. Yehuda is uh, founded, uh, founded Breaking the Silence in 2004 with a group of former fellow veterans who uh, actively speak out against uh, Israeli policies in the occupied territories. You can follow him at Yehuda Shaw um, uh, on Twitter. Great, so, so we're gonna have a sort of free ranging conversation Unusually for one of the Occupied Thought podcasts, we are all four of us sitting in the same place. It's pretty amazing in this COVID era to have everyone here at once. So we're going to have a free-ranging conversation. I think, Khaled, you're going to lead us off. Yeah, I guess the first question is, um, what are you guys both doing here in Washington? Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish uh, and why now? Um, so let's, let's start with you, Danny, if we could. And if you could lean into the computer, because we only have one computer to record from. This is very high tech in my kitchen. Well, this is um, the beginning of post-Trumpian recuperation. Um, we have, like the rest of the world, endured the parallel universe of Trump waited with great anticipation for the new Biden administration um, and very eager during the first uh, 10 months, um, getting our bearings and not coming to Washington because there was nobody to talk to and not much to talk about. Um, uh, expectations that things would change rapidly uh, did not happen, I think, for many of the reasons are that our expectations were exaggerated, but things are falling into place. We're now beginning to get a grasp as to how the administration views the conflict, 
uh, not entirely to our satisfaction, but uh, in many ways understandable. But most importantly, um, there was nobody to talk to until recently. Um, in order to have policy um, uh, on these issues, you need uh, three levels. You need an architect who will determine in policy. You need uh, the building contractor who will build that policy. And then you need the craftsman. Well, the craftsmen in many ways have been purged by the Trump administration. There's some very good folks still around, but a lot have moved on or have been deposed. Uh, there is, uh, you know, the building contractor and the image of uh, Hadi Amar and, and his associates, but there really hasn't been an architect. Um, initially, there was a sense that uh, the conflict's going to be deprioritized. There's no doubt about that. I wish I could argue uh, um, against that, but in some ways I understand why that's the case. Uh, but it's a fact. Uh, initially, it was seen that the deprioritizing is walking away. Uh, and we were sending warning signals in March and April that Jerusalem was going to about to erupt and there was zero response because you can walk away. Well, I, the events of last May and the violence that was triggered in Jerusalem and spread not only to, the, to Gaza, but within Israel proper indicates that even walking away requires a certain amount of skill and engagement. And it was an aha moment. Uh, um, so currently what we are exploring with our friends in Washington is how can a level of engagement be maintained even in the framework of strategic deprioritization that will be in some way stabilizing, consequential, and address the issues of occupation. If you think that this can be maintained on life support without doing the difficult things of engaging occupation and moving some ways, not only to ameliorate what occupation is about, but to deoccupy. There's a lot of talk about narrowing the conflict. Shrinking. Shrinking the conflict. The amazing shrinking conflict. No, if you're not deoccupying, you're not doing anything. Shrinking the conflict is a palliative and it will not last very long. That's what we're looking at. Uh, Yehuda. Um, I think I, I don't have much to add uh, on, on what Danny said, but I, I really think the, the at, at the end of, of, of his words um, on the shrinking the conflict thing, I think that's the real thing. Yeah, you cannot, you cannot claim for shrinking the conflict while implementing, uh, uh, advancing settlements in, in a massive way around Jerusalem and places that for, you know, for decades almost we haven't seen uh, Israeli governments moving forward. You cannot claim to shrinking the conflict with advancing processes that can end up with 
expulsion of entire neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, which I'm sure Danny will talk about soon. You cannot claim you're shrinking the conflict while advancing a master plan of roads that will take us throughout the West Bank to better connect settlements and facilitate doubling the amount of settlers in the next 20 years. The last time this was done was in the 1990s. And we saw the results, yeah, in 1995, once Oslo B is signed, we had 116,000 settlers in the West Bank, excluding East Jerusalem. Today, we're about 470,000, yeah? It's during the days of peace, of the peace process, that the number of settlers more than tripled because the infrastructure for that was put in place. You cannot claim you're shrinking the conflicts while, while, while advancing a master plan for water. Within four or five years, we're going to have enough running water in the West Bank for almost one million settlers. And I can go on and on, yeah? Like we tend to think of settlement development as, you know, counting housing units, but we forget that counting housing, like actual construction of a housing unit is the end of the process of development. It starts with land allocation, with planning, with infrastructure, and ultimately it gets into that. So I think for us is about trying to get people in the administration, people on the Hill, uh, people here in the policy community to understand that yes, Netanyahu is gone, Yes, this government is less worse than another government with Netanyahu, Shaked, Bennett, etc. But this slogan shrinking the conflict doesn't really represent what they're going, what we are facing and where we are going. So I want to follow up on a bunch of that. And, and you know, you laid out a bunch of the topics we're going to want to ask you to discuss in this very brief amount of time that we have. But first, if I could ask you, and you know, I want you to first you to go first this time. On um, the question of the new government, you mentioned that, you know, in the United States, there was a great sigh of relief from many when the BB government fell, the, the dude wasn't in government again. Um, Democrats certainly see this as a great opportunity for a different interface with Israel. Obviously, the Biden administration has seen Bennett and Lapid both come to Washington. Um, the Palestinians seem conspicuously absent from all conversations, which seems to be a great success for those who want to shrink the Palestinians out of the conflict. Um, but can you talk about, in term, as a policy matter, Israeli policy and politics, this new government, um, what does it mean for settlements? What does it mean for the, the, the hopes? I mean, if they're using terms like shrinking the conflict, I think there's a lot of people here who think that means that they're intending to be genuinely more constructive. So either validate that or explain to us why that hopeful thought is wrong. So, so before, before talking about what this government means for Palestinians, I think it's important to note that for us in Israel, this government um, is, some, is a moment where we can finally breathe a little bit, and that counts. And on many issues internally in Israeli society, yeah, um, this government will advance um, positive things for us as Israelis, Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel. Yeah, this is something to actually, we need to recognize. Um, not as good as many people expect or think, yeah, but it's there and it's important to put on the table. But I believe that when it comes to Israel's behavior behind the green line, um, sadly enough, I don't think we're gonna see serious departure from previous Israeli policy. Um, Yes, de jure annexation is off the table. Yes, some of the more, you know, big changes that due to Trump here, 
more than even what happened in Israeli politics. It's more about what happens to the Republican Party and, and Trump were on the table a few years ago or off the table. But if that's our bar today, like we're in a serious problem. But in terms of de facto annexation on the ground, I fear and I see in front of my eyes is that the escalation of the reality continues. And this is not just in a quantitative level, but also in quantitative. Yeah, like very serious and strategic things are being advanced. Um, like I said, in terms of infrastructure, um, like something that people, again, it's the nitty greedy of how Israel takes over the West Bank. But there's a relatively new phenomenon. It's not new, it's not completely new, but like as the main strategic element of uh, one of the main strategic uh, um, steps of the settlers is what is called uh, herding farms. Yeah, these are outposts where like one family and few uh, teenagers, yeah, with like uh, sheep or cattle can take over thousands of dunams. Um, and in that way also make life for Palestinian herding communities more difficult because they take over grazing lands. And by the way, the huge spike of settler violence that you see today in the West Bank Big part of it is also linked to these dozens of farms that started in the last five years. And in a way, in terms of space, settlers in the last five years took over more land than what 50 years of settlement construction took. Yeah, uh, we're talking about between uh, one to two percent of the entire West Bank now taken via these uh, um, Herding communities. And with nobody noticing except the actual people like you who follow this very closely. Yeah. And nobody protesting. Yeah. The, so, it, yeah. And it's like this thinking of, yeah, of the national community. Of, of course, but it's this thinking of, you know, oh, it's only just one family and few teenagers. This is not, you know, this is not difficult to evacuate in a final status while you're continuing to fantasizing on a final status one day. At the end of the day, we're eating everything, leaving nothing for Palestinians. Um, where I do think there is, after, after saying all this in terms of the, the new Israeli government, I do think that because of how the government is structured, if we had a serious administration here willing to engage and try to prevent these major developments in escalation on the ground, we might have seen an Israeli government that is more receptive to this pressure due to the kind of like the belief that we need to rebuild our relationship with the Democratic Party, et cetera, et cetera, yeah? Like, so I think this is really up to uh, the U.S. administration, now the Biden administration, to show whether they're serious or not. Uh, Danny, did you want to say anything about the new Israeli government? How you see it? Yeah, Jerusalem in particular. You know, I, I hear from a lot of friends, uh, especially friends on the left, who say there's no difference between this administration and, and Netanyahu, I disagree with that, but I sympathize with it. Um, I, I, there are three and now four issues that I've been monitoring, um, Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan, um, which for the first time since June 10th, 1967, Israel will be engaging in large-scale displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. We moved 225,000 settlers to East Jerusalem. I don't like that. I've spent my adult life combating it, but we didn't displace. You're talking 67 to the present. To the present. 
Um, and we're now on the cusp of displacing thousands of Palestinians, not all over the place, Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan. Um, we are witnessing um, an approach towards implementation in E1, something that did not take place under Trump and Netanyahu. They didn't dare. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit, just to explain to our audience who may not be familiar, what is E1? E1 is a large 12 and a half square kilometer area uh, immediately to the east of Jerusalem uh, in the West Bank, um, the area between the third largest settlement in the West Bank, Maled Dumim, and East Jerusalem. And from the get-go, it has been viewed as a doomsday settlement because it would fracture and fragment the West Bank into cantons and make the integration of a Palestinian national capital into any Palestinian state impossible. In Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, um, in Jerusalem. Yeah, now, now um, it's been on the drawing board since 1996 when we first brought this to the Clinton White House. Every American government, every European government has told Israel, don't. This is considered to be the ultimate red line. And no Israeli government has dared move seriously towards implementation in the past. Well, that is now happening. When I'm saying now, I'm talking about next week, October 18th. And then again, I think on November 4th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the, 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 the two remaining issues interrelated, uh, one, the erosion, and I believe now collapse of the status quo on the Temple Mount in ways that we have not witnessed since 1967. And uh, the morphing of the Jerusalem police um, to, from a police of occupation and basically into a militia, which is targeting Palestinians and treating the Palestinians of East Jerusalem as though they were the enemy. Now, the, the Bennett government didn't invent any of these things. We, they inherited them. And at this point, I think that nobody in official Israel, including the prime minister, wants Sheikh Jarrah to happen. In terms uh, they, of the, the evictions. The evictions. They want it to go away. Uh, but I think we're learning something very important that Netanyahu um, spliced his ideological DNA into that of Israel. Uh, a good deal of it was already there. So that official Israel's DNA is that of occupation. And a change in government does not change that, especially if you have many members of the government like Bennett, who continue to identify with that. So in that sense, nothing changes by Netanyahu disappearing. The police don't need to receive marching orders in order to beat young Palestinians for kicks at Damascus Gate on a nightly basis. Having said that, there are differences. You'd alluded to one of them. We have a prime minister who said, I don't want to live in Israel without a left wing. 
That's huge because the left has been targeted as enemies. That doesn't change anything, but it creates opportunity. And there is already a change in the discourse uh, taking place in civil society that our politicians, our left-wing politicians have not picked up on yet. I would say um, the ministers in this government are engageable and educable in ways that the previous government were not. It doesn't mean that they've been engaged and it doesn't mean they've been um, educated. Now, I think the, this administration has taken all of the issues that I've mentioned very seriously uh, uh, to the level of the president. The president is meeting with uh, Netanyahu, with Netanyahu, excuse me, hmm. habits die, you know, take a long time dying, but engage Bennett on generalities on Iran and on two Jerusalem issues, Sheikh Jarrah and, and, and the consulate. Um, getting the president to engage on things like this is no small matter, and I think E1 and uh, settler violence and the violence of police are receiving attention. That has not yet translated into um, getting Israel to reverse on this. And I remain very concerned, but this is a period where we're exploring opportunities that did not exist in the past. It's not easy. There are no successes to point to as of yet, uh, but I would not, um, don't allow the, 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 the similarities ideologically between the previous governor and this one deter us. There are opportunities that have to be taken advantage of, and I believe that's possible. So the, the it's our duty to <clears throat> try to. Okay. So, yeah. Um, Danny, the picture both that, that you and, and Yehuda painted is one in which the status quo is obviously is not static, but the status quo basically consists of moving kind of inexorably toward de facto annexation and precluding the possibility of two states. We're in de facto we're, annexation already. Yes, so we're, we're, things are moving along, as you said. The, the prime minister doesn't need to give marching orders. These things have been set in motion already. And so if the priority of this administration and of at least Democrats in Congress is to preserve the possibility of two states, doesn't that mean they need to take active steps, not simply doing nothing, but actively stopping things and getting the Israeli leadership to take negative action against uh, these um, uh, you know, these dynamics that have already been set in motion, how do you do that? How do you, or I should say, I should ask, what, how do you convince uh, the, this administration that wants to do as little as possible um, that, do, that, it, that is essentially the same as uh, allowing uh, annexation to continue? I, let me articulate what I believe to be um, the assumptions of the administration or, or, or the goalposts, okay? Uh, on the one hand, 
It's clear that this administration is deprioritizing this conflict. Um, initially deprioritizing was walking away after the events of violence. Um, that's changed a bit, but the overarching strategy is deprioritize. Two, there is the assumption that given the basket cases that we have in Ramallah and Jerusalem, there will be no significant forward movement towards a permanent status agreement. I can like that, I can dislike that, but I don't think that that is going to change. Uh, if the assumption is that um, you are going to deprioritize, there's not going to be forward movement, but you can't walk away, the magic wand is now narrowing the conflict. Narrowing the conflict doesn't exist. Shrinking the conflict doesn't exist. It is same old, same old. Uh, Dennis Ross may be gone, but his spirit lingers. And that means, uh, uh, let's see if we can give sufficient material benefits to the Palestinians that will placket them sufficiently so that they will waive their aspirations for dignity, freedom, and self-determination. It's worked in the past temporarily in Jerusalem. The, you know, Lara and I have spoken for years about the buy them and break them approach. Buy the Palestinians with trinkets and uh, shiny objects. Um, and if they don't accept it, come down like a ton of bricks by not letting them get driver's license without an approval from Mission Bet. That period is over. So um, the question then becomes, what can be done given the assumptions of the administration? And it is going, not, can't be done on the cheap. It will mean um, challenging Israel. It will mean doing things that are difficult. All the easy stuff has been done already and it no longer works. And if, if it does not in some way address the core issue of occupation and display a seriousness about ending occupation, even if we know that that's not immediately available, and if it doesn't hurt domestically in the United States, and if it is not challenging the relations between Israel and the United States, it's a clear indication that it's not serious. Now, there are things that can be done. You know, the word deoccupation for me is critical. Don't ask me what I mean by that because I only have a partial answer. We are in uncharted waters, but those are the directions that we need to do. How do you empower Palestinians um, in East Jerusalem? How do you, what were the foundations of Trump's policies? Denationalize the Palestinians of East Jerusalem, fragment them geographically and socially, marginalize Muslim equities. I would say, Take those as points of departure. And that means reestablish and engage a Palestinian national collective, renationalize the Palestinian rights in East Jerusalem, restore the ability of 
Palestinians to engage in political life in East Jerusalem, even under these circumstances. Treat it like a hard disk, defragmentation. Defragment de Palestinian lives. That means addressing the issues of settlement, defragment uh, socially, repoliticize means move towards elections, even if, that we know that it's going to take months, and, and Jerusalem should be part of that. And to restore the status quo, not only technically, but in a way that the Muslim and Christian Palestinian communities do not need to struggle to maintain their identities and the integrity of their religious sites. Those are things that are achievable. Few of them are low-hanging fruit. Reestablishing the status quo, look, it's, it's a radioactive issue. People are scared of it, but it's easy. It's easy because we know what the core of that is. The other stuff is more difficult and there are things that I'm not mentioning because we haven't thought enough about them. But those are the directions that we have to go into. Deoccupy. What, what's striking listening, for me listening to, to what you just laid out, which makes great sense, is that a lot of those things are not just rolling back what Trump did. These are things, these are recommendations you were making during the Obama era. Right, re reallowing the political activity of Palestinians in Jerusalem. I mean, th th there's some fundamental stuff here that has. This isn't just undoing Trump; it's undoing years of neglect. Or Trump was a pathological expression exactly. of the neuroses that existed long before he arrived. Exactly. Um, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're having a conversation amongst the moderators. I wanted to just very quickly go back to Yuda and talk a little bit focusing on the West Bank and your reflections on the identity and personality and role of the IDF in the West Bank today. Because right now, I don't know if you want to talk about specifically what we're seeing with the, the olive harvest and the pogroms. I mean, we have seen visible, obviously there's constant violence in the West Bank. And as you have said, I learned from you always, you know, occupation is violence. But in terms of actual, you know, violence of people, you know, settlers throwing stones and, you know, injuring and seeking to injure Palestinians, we're seeing what feels like a real uptick in the past year, year and a half, two years. And it, the role of the IDF is, is, is really quite troubling for someone watching it from the outside. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? And that's also separate from the politics of the current government. This is something that sort of runs on its own, on its own end, its own steam. Yeah. So, so I think it's, it's, yeah, when we talk about like um, settler violence in the West Bank and where we are kind of like at the peak of, you know, what is it? I think this year up to June, we've already done almost, you know, in terms of numbers of attacks, uh, more than 2019 in the entire year and almost entire, the numbers of entire 2020. Um, uh, 400 and something attacks uh, this year for in, in less than half a year. But I think it's important to understand that the, the story is not just violent settlers. The story is the uh, lack of law enforcement in them. And again, this is not just something that happens, it's structural. Yeah, like lack of law enforcement on settlers means the system works. That's what it's designed to the do. The feature not above. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and, and this is, and this is for, for many reasons. It's structured in, in the two tier legal system we have in the West Bank, right? Where 
uh, Palestinians living under military rule, under military law, while settlers are under Israeli civilian law. The army is there. When I was a soldier, and until today, our mission statement is to protect the settlers, i.e. to enforce law on Palestinians. We see settlers attacking Palestinians, not our job. That's the job of the Israeli civilian police. They're there to enforce Israeli civilian law. And of course, the amount of rights here around the military law are a bit less, if I'm allowed to be a bit uh, sarcastic, yeah? uh, than, uh, than what you have under civilian law. So you have these two legal systems um, with two different, like in the same territory and different people. This is one thing, but it's deeper than that. It's also because that's our mission. So we're not gonna turn against the people we're supposed to protect. It's also because we are from the same side and we speak the same language. And it's that on Friday night, the settlers will give us schnitzels and, you know, and shunt on Shabbat, yeah? Like uh, the stew that uh, religious Jews eat on Shabbat uh, for lunch. So we're not gonna arrest them after they just hosted us. And it's because part of our education when we get to a new tour of duty, we might find ourselves touring the area with settlers and seeing the place and the perspective from their, you know, from their political uh, perspective. Um, and it's because in the mindset of soldiers, we're here for, you know, I served in Hebron, for example, I come for six, seven months, I leave. The settlers are always, they know the place better than me, right? So I should listen to them. But this doesn't explain everything. And it's not just the political power of the settlers. It's also because the relationship between the military and the settlers is so symbiotic today that it's in some places, it's too difficult to identify anymore where starts the military, ends the military, starts the civilians, ends civilians. And I'm gonna explain what I mean. Um, in, and this has nothing to do just with politics. This is about pure operational issues. As a soldier, I was in basic training. I was in sergeant training. I was sent to guard a settlement for a week or two. Who was the person giving me my rules of engagement? Was it my direct officer? No, because we were spread out in different settlements. But was the settler security officer that briefed me every day about my rules of engagement and my mission statement? Every settlement in the West Bank, most of the outposts have a local settler hired by the regional council, financed by the Ministry of Defense, and they're like a local sheriff in a way. And as soldiers assigned to guard their settlements, we were under them. Every week, the West Bank is divided to regional brigades. Once a week, there is an intelligence assessment briefing. Who sits around the table? The Brigadier General, his deputy, the operations officer, the Shabak people, the battalion commanders deployed in the area, and settler security representatives. They sit on a radio. Um, we have now special forces undercover operating in, inside a Palestinian town. We need first response teams. Let's say the assumption is we need four doctors. We don't have four military doctors. So the sector ambulances will be part of our first response. And I can go on and on here with a thousand different examples with these nitty gritties. Um, and, and that brings us to reality where today you can't really distinguish. Yeah? You can't really separate, break this relationship. So the concept of separation of power is, is so basic for, law, you know, for, for rule of law, right? The system cannot turn against itself. It can't be that in Sunday we were sitting together in a meeting, on Monday they came to train on my shooting range on the base, on Tuesday they came you know, to brief us on something, and on Wednesday I'm going to arrest them, and on Saturday I'm going to eat at their place. Like, it doesn't work this way. Um, 
And to that also, you need to factor in the sociological change of the IDF, yeah, of where um, more and more national religious, more and more settler presence, um, working class, which usually in Israel tend to lean more to the right, um, while middle high class tend to lean to the left are less and less in combat units. So that also definitely influences the relationship on the ground. And that's why we see this reality where you have separate programs accompanied by military and the military never like did anything to stop it in the last few months. And in some cases even took active part in this. I wonder if I add that very briefly and connect that with your question on E1. no Israeli prime minister has dared pursue E1 seriously. The hearings on E1 were scheduled a couple of months after the Bennett uh, government uh, took shape. Nobody at cabinet level and certainly not the prime minister knew about this. Uh, Under Netanyahu, nothing could happen on E1 without his advanced knowledge and consent. Uh, Now you have a situation where Bennett, Lapid, Gantz didn't know that this was being advanced. This was the settler regime acting under its own steam. Um, uh, In part, it was, we're doing this because nobody's paying attention and we can. In part, it was, let's put this government to the test. Um, well, the government knows now that this is happening. They know that it's going to be a huge crisis with the administration and with Europe. You know, this government is trying not only to restore its relations with the Democratic Party and a Democratic president, but to turn a new leaf with the EU. They know that E1 is going to be a major problem and they have not acted because nobody wants to mess with the settler regime. Danny, if I could follow up on something, uh, you know, Yehuda mentioned uh, the symbiotic relationship between the, the settlers and the Israeli army in the, in the West Bank. Uh, occupation and settlement works a little bit differently inside municipal Jerusalem uh, in terms of the, the institutions, but is there a similarly symbiotic relationship there um, between not necessarily the IDF, but state institutions, including, since you're a lawyer and since you work on on a lot of these cases, uh, including the courts, um, when it comes to to the settlement project. And specifically, I'm referring to uh, the cases in in places like Sheikh Jarrah that are now tied up in the courts, and there will be some sort of a court ruling, I think, in the next few weeks. Um, but but if, if you could, uh, uh, you know, I'd like you to touch on that specific case, but also more generally, what is the relationship between the state institutions and the settlers? Is it a similar kind of symbiotic dynamic in Jerusalem? I, I am celebrating a yard site. I started working on this uh, issue on the night between October 9th and October 10th, 1991, exactly. 30 years. That's when the settlers first moved into Silwan. And along with colleagues, Chaim alone, we took this to court. And, and when we got all of our legal and research done, uh, we 
brought the village elders together and the, the wisest and most curmudgeonly of them was Merun Benveniste who passed away about a year ago. And he looked at this material that we'd accomplished and said, this is amazing work, but gosh, you're virgins, you are absolutely clueless. Israel is a, a feisty and flawed democracy in Israel proper. When you get to Silwan, it morphs into a regime. And that was in 1991. Today, um, the distinction between government and the settler enterprise in the core, the settlement enclaves, it's indistinguishable. The settler DNA has been spliced into the DNA of official Israel every one of the organs of government, whether it's the police, the land authority, the absentee property custodian, the parks uh, department, etc., And governmental authorities have been outsourced to the settlers. So, you know, the distinction between the public and the private here, completely indistinguishable. It's a bit different when it comes to the courts. Um, if you look at the records of the proceeding and the recent hearings between the Supreme Court, it's riveting. It was a hearing that went on for eight hours. The word Israeli, Palestinian, occupation, displacement, did not, no mention of it. But everybody knew what was going on. Now, the justices indicated, we know what's happening here. But with the Israeli Supreme Court, for a justice on the Israeli Supreme Court to say, hey, this is occupation and we've got to stop it. There's only one. They can put their keys on the table, as they say in Hebrew. They can resign. They're not resigning. What the court is now doing is to say, look, we're imperfect. Um, in this case, there's no way that we can rule in favor of the Palestinians. There's just no way. In this specific case, the other cases, there are other opportunities. And that is the reason that they are pushing as hard as they can to get a settlement, which is painful and imperfect for the Palestinians. I don't think there's going to be a settlement. I think it's possible, but excruciatingly painful for the Palestinians to accept the settlement. I don't believe that the settlers will, which means by year's end, we will likely see a court ruling and it is highly likely that that court ruling will be against the residents. Now, there are those who are saying to the Palestinians, including colleagues of ours on the left, telling the Palestinian residents, don't worry, after President Biden spoke to Biden, nobody's going to dare touch you. You'll be fine, even if there's a verdict. Don't worry about it. And I think that that's entirely correct if you're talking about six months after the verdict, a year after the verdict, two years after the verdict. Bennett doesn't want to evict these people. But I've been in the business longer than Bennett has. And all it will take is a coalition crisis, a new government, 
or a terror attack with double-digit casualties and the residents will be evicted. If there will be a verdict, there will be displacement. So we cannot be in any way sanguine about this. You know, I want to follow up on, we were talking before about the sort of the, the farms, the farming and herding. You know, I, I think what's really interesting, what's largely missed are some of these major um, initiatives that are underway to really change the face of the West Bank that don't involve individual houses that can be counted. And one of them dovetails with something Danny is saying about the role of settlers in the government entities, which is the land registration issue, which seems like, you know, hey, we want to do a better job registering land after 53 years. Seems pretty non-controversial. Can you disabuse those who think this is a non-controversial or non-politicized effort? Can you disabuse them of that notion? And can you also talk about the role of um, greater Israel organizations in, in, in this whole idea and, and, and its, its, its genesis and its implementation? So <laughs> I think it's illustrative of a lot. Yeah, it's just I, I think it's really nitty gritty. And, and, and uh, so I, I hope I, I will be able to, to tell to explain it uh, uh, without going, you know, too much into details, but still making sense. Now, this is about land registration, yeah, formal taboo registration of land, um, which in 1967, once the occupation uh, began, uh, Meir Shemgal at the time, the MAG base, the military advocate general decided to freeze that. So Palestinians is, who hadn't registered their land before 67 have not been able to do so since then. Yeah, it's the process that began, you know, before the occupation, Jordanians, uh, et cetera, so only one third of the land in the West Bank was actually registered, um, finalized in the table, in the land registration books. Um, so two thirds were not. Um, and, and there are many reasons why Shamgal at the time stopped it. Uh, but one of the reasons was that Esau in principle occupation is something temporary while land registration is something permanent. And he didn't believe that it's legally yeah, within the uh, authority of the occupying power to actually do permanent changes in the land. It's a bit funny to say, yes, well, we have the settlement enterprise, right? Over half a million people uh, being moved there. Uh, but this, is, this was one of the logic there. There was another one, of course, that to do the land survey, you actually need a lot of documentation and Palestinians in, in many areas in the West Bank where the Jordanians started the survey and didn't finish, all these documents were in the archives of the Jordanian government, which is an enemy government then to Israel. So we don't have access, so we cannot infringe on the rights of Palestinians, et cetera. Um, but I think this story is a great example for why there is no moral occupation. Because Shamgal did this move in 67 out of goodwill. I don't think it was cynical at the time. I don't think it was, yeah. I think it was an attempt to actually try to manage the occupation in a proper way. Yeah? And kind of like what we used to call in Israeli politics an enlightened occupation, yeah? Kibush But this turned to be one of the most important and influential decisions that allowed Israel to grab land later on by so-called declaring state land, and we're not gonna go into that, misusing the Ottoman uh, laws. So, but this is going beyond that. So we, we've had since 67, Israel has used this mishmash of laws to grab all the land it could under the guise of state land. But yeah. now building on that, we have a new chapter opening, right? Exactly. So if so now, like basically annexationists, 
like Regavim, like Bezalel Smotrich, yeah, are pushing kind of like, oh, there is all these disputes of land. We need once and for all to actually, you know, solve it. Let's do a land survey. Let's dig deep and decide who owns which plot and finalize the process. And from now on, no disputes after that. So Regavim is a right-wing Israeli organization really dedicated to essentially asserting Israeli rights across all of the West Bank. And Smotrich is a right-wing member of the Knesset who just last week made a speech on the Knesset floor yelling at Palestinian citizens of Israel saying that Ben-Gurion did not do a good enough job in ethnic cleansing in 1948 and their presence is a mistake. Yeah. So. And in, by the way, in, in the committee in parliament in the Knesset, when this issue of, of of kind of like restarting this land survey in the West Bank came up and one of the members of Knesset said that we need to make sure that, you know, that the laws fit us and we won't have problems from this because we might theoretically lose land that today we call state land because Palestinians might be able to approve to, you know, to show that this is theirs. Smotrich and others basically, don't worry, it's done. Basically the game is rigged enough already. The rules are with us. Rule by law, not rule of law. Exactly. So if we're going to move with this land survey, um, this is going to be a land grab that puts all what we've taken up to now, um, nothing compared to. Like from 67 to today, Israel formally changed status of land of a little bit over 22% of the West Bank. Okay? But this is going to be... I would say probably even more than that. Palestinians are going to lose half, yeah, half of Area C is going, and, and, and we need to understand that this is a final thing. Once land is registered in the taboo, there is no way to overturn it. So this is permanent. Yeah, this is taking all the declared state land and putting it in the taboo cannot, cannot be overturned and more and much more. So, and more important than that, sorry for insisting on this one is, this is, some way of basically de jure annexation, of formalizing Israeli sovereignty in a way. If we are making these permanent changes in land, um, so this would be definitely dramatic. It's not clear if it's going ahead in the West Bank. In East Jerusalem, it started already. It's ongoing. When it comes to West Bank, the civil administration, the branch of the Israeli army that deals with the civilian elements in the occupied territories, um, is recommending a pilot, yeah, uh, just to test it. The settler uh, civil society politicians, yeah, the annexationists are pushing it. We don't know yet where this government will go. And lastly, who is inside the Israeli government, you have the organization's presence, correct, who are deeply engaged in this, specifically Regavim, no? But, but look, the advisor, the advisor of the prime minister, Bennett, on settlement issues is a lawyer called Amir Fischel, yeah, who was a lawyer of Regavim, yeah. okay? Uh, the advisor of Gantz, of the Minister of Defense and Settlements, is Uavi Royer, the guy used to be the head of the Yesha Council. Our Prime Minister was running the Yesha Council of Tali Bennett. So, I think and I can go I on think, and I think on. for a lot of people, it's hard to understand quite how wedded together the Israeli political echelons are with the greater Israel movement. I think it's really it, important. Indeed, the uh, head of the Parks Authority that uh, that Danny mentioned, Shaul Goldstein, yeah, who used to be the head of the Regional Council of Gush Etzion. And we can go on now for a half an hour just yeah. going. And the Jerusalem district, uh, the Taran. On, on, on. <laughs> yeah.
his previous post was the visitor center of the allied Silwan settlers. Yes. A regime. Old friends. Khaled is going to wind us up with the last big question for both of you. Right. So we're just about out of time. But before you both go, um, I want to put one last question to you. And that is, if if we suddenly just now got a call from the White House and they said, "I guys, I heard you're in town. The President Biden wants to see you. He's got five minutes. What what do you say to the president? Elevator speech. You have five minutes together. <laughs> They're just point for people who can't see them. <laughs> Danny and, and Yuda are pointing at each other like a comedy routine here. No, you. No, you. So Yuda, go first. <laughs> You're addressing um, President Biden directly here. No, for me, like again, it's not like for me. The story is very simple. You claim you support a paradigm of two states, behave on that, act on that, yeah? Uh, talks is not enough. It's not enough uh, to stop de facto annexation. It's not enough to preserve a paradigm of two states, but rather the opposite, yeah? One of the main reasons why two state lost credibility completely is because of endless talk and no action. So all these developments on the ground we've spoken about, and way before that, there is a lot of housekeeping to be done here in the U.S. to reverse a lot of um, Trump's uh, doing, um, undoing a lot of Trump's behavior here and policies. Um, so if you really believe in two states, you need to act. That's, for me, the most important thing. The Trump plan was also about two states, at least on the declarative level. It was about formalizing apartheid and calling it two states. So if Biden administration is saying we're in favor of two states, but we cannot say that it's based on 67, that there is going to be two capitals in Jerusalem, you're not in favor of two states. You're in favor of formalizing apartheid and calling it peace. Danny? Mr. President, um, you undoubtedly support and love Israel but you support an Israel that no longer exists. You support the Israel that I moved to in 1973. A dirty little secret, the Israel that I moved to in 1973 also didn't exist. But let's put that aside. Israel will end occupation or occupation will be the end of Israel. Uh, you have an opportunity of being a second Harry Truman, who was present at the creation. It's much less romantic, it's much less of a grand gesture, but you are in a position to save Israel from itself, to, save, to, to prevent Israel from destroying itself by perpetuating occupation. The deck that you have been dealt as president may not allow you to move in one grand gesture to end that the occupation. Ending that occupation is going to be excruciatingly difficult, both in Israel and for the United States. There will be political prices to be paid. But unless you will engage Israel and the Palestinians towards ending that occupation, um, your 
administration will be a squandered opportunity and we will be in a situation where Israel is undermining its own long-term viability. Engage in the issue of deoccupation. So thank you, those are powerful words and we're gonna to have to stop there. So uh, Denny and Yuda, thank you so much for joining us today in my kitchen. And sorry for the background noise, my <laughs> coffee maker has its own schedule cleaning itself. Um, and thank you for sharing your vast expertise and insight with our audience. It's such a pleasure to do this together with my, my friend and again, thank you so much. Um, next time it's thank in you, your Bob. kitchen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, Thanks for listening and watching to our audience or not watching. We don't have a video of this one. And as always, um, you should subscribe to Occupy Thoughts or to our podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify. You should also check our website, www.fmep.org, and also check the Midwest Institute website for fantastic programming and content. Um, and with that, we will end this. Uh, so thank you very much for our Thank you, Bob. The Foundation, Danny, Yuda, Khalid. And uh, until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. 